Okay. Here we go. I think we are live. Um, just going to give it a moment to make sure. Yeah. Great. So, uh, hello, everybody. We are here for a special live episode of Growing Down podcast to pay tribute and celebrate the life and work of Michael Brooks, who, as many of you know, has uh, uh, passed away last Sunday unexpectedly, very suddenly. But um, as many of you also know, he had a profound impact, I think, on our community of integralists and metamodernists and political thinkers and philosophers intersecting with uh, so much of uh, uh, communities and discussions on the left in the United States and internationally. Um, Michael was a very good friend of mine. I I'm honored to, to be able to say that. Um, and this is not an easy live stream to do, but I feel like it's a necessary one. Um, so where do we begin? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we, we wanted to basically kind of share some of our thoughts and our reflections on his life, his contributions, his influences on us personally. And, um, you know, I got, I got his book right here. Um, so if we want to read a little bit from that, we can certainly do that. There's some funny stuff in there. And there's some really beautifully promising stuff in there that I guess all of us are going to have to carry forward. Um, this, this dream of uh, cosmopolitan socialism uh, that Michael was very um, adamant and passionate and brilliant in, in speaking about. So maybe I can pass it over to uh, one of us to share a little bit if anybody would like to, I don't know, go first with their impressions and reflections uh, on, on Michael's life and work. <laughs> I, I thought we could structure this in a way where each person can take a turn sharing uh, how Michael's work influenced you and kind of pay tribute to uh, some of the great things that he's done and um, then talk about your own personal vision of how you see yourself continuing his work with the integral left project and whatever unique form that takes for, for you and what your interests are. So um, that's kind of how we could, I thought we could structure it, it would be kind of nice to uh, see also how we're going to carry his work on into the future. Sure. Wondering who wants to go first. I don't want to call anyone out, but I'm wondering if Brent, if you wanted to <laughs> kick it off for us. I know Michael was a, a <clears throat> you know, you had a close relationship with him personally. Thanks. Sure. <clears throat> I wasn't, I wasn't going to go first, but since he called on me, um, the, the first thing that popped in my head, actually, Jeremy, you said impressions are impressions of Michael Brooks. And I just thought like, he's the master of impressions, you know, and <clears throat> none of us could could hold a candle to that so I guess that's a good place to start because you know aside from his intellect I was attracted to Michael Brooks for his comedy that's been a big part of my life and my intellect as well he <laughs> was he was the funniest and the smartest person on the left as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> so it's a real power combination. And he's, uh, he's, he's extremely irreplaceable. And, you know, I've spent this week um, watching all the uh, memorials about about two dozen, maybe maybe three dozen people, you know, pouring out their support. And it's, it's that helps you get through it. Because <clears throat> this is just 
an unfathomable thing. Everybody knows on the left, at least that, that, you know, just how, how special he was and how much potential there was in the future. So, you know, it's been impressive to, to see people do it so quickly. You know, I thought, I thought, well, I've had a, you know, five days now to kind of process, but it's still, it's still very difficult. So, you know, it's, uh, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you guys, you know, and how Michael brought a lot of us together. And, you know, I mean, I'm extremely saddened by it. Of course, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, still, still becoming friends with Michael. We've been in touch for year and a half, maybe two years, but you know, for the three years that he's had his show in our, in our different spaces that we work in, you know, integral and emerge, uh, metamodern stuff. I've, I've been his biggest champion. Um, and I still, I don't think people realize how, how intellectual he was, how serious he was as, as a scholar and an activist. It really puts a lot of people to shame. so we have a we have a very difficult task to honor that legacy and you know i think i i think i'm you know i'm i'm just getting started kind of in the in the mold of what he did but uh you know i i I identified with him right away when i when i discovered him just because you know i i found him through majority report, you know, as a co-host and just thought, well, that's a great show, but Michael Brooks is the real kind of rising star there because he's melding geopolitics and just a, just a a synthesis of everything. And he, as I I said to Lehman earlier this morning, you know, Michael Brooks has the right sources in the first place, which a lot of people don't. So you need that foundation to build on. And then Brooks was a, a synthesizer and trying to do something very meta. And and I just don't think he got enough credit while he was here. And, um, you know, listening to all the memorials this week, you know, it's it's great to hear people's interpolations and kind of highlight his strengths and his project and his compassion as a socialist. Um, I mean, for me, this, this, this uh, line of, of, political progress is a, is a no-brainer, you know, the support the Bernie movement. When, when that fails, you know, we, we carry on, we carry on the, the movement and the project. <clears throat> but this is totally an unfair, unexpected shock to the, le- to the left and to a, a lot of people personally. <clears throat> and, you know, as, as Jeremy knows, you know, he, well, he's been a guest several times on the show, but but more and more, Michael was mentioning the two of us together <clears throat> in his live streams from home, and that that just meant the world to me. I never asked Michael for anything. I, I was the last emails I sent him actually, I was just asking how I could help his show more. Uh, so <clears throat> that that's what I want to do. It's what we all have to do. Thank you, Brent. Uh, Ryan, I feel like uh, 
it's it's helpful for you being the MC here. So if you want to uh, choose the next person, that's fine. I, I don't mind going last. I feel like I should go last as the host. So sure, sure. We'll have a we'll bookend it like that. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Brent, for sharing so sincerely and and from the heart so much. You had me. Oh, choking up there a little bit myself. Um, yeah, beautiful, beautifully said. Who, who wants to uh, who wants to go next? If anyone has some salient thoughts on their mind about Mike Owen's work, well, I, I I can just chime in briefly. Just I'm um, reflecting on what Brent said, and I feel like there's something really beautiful and meaningful about um, reflecting on a unique individual as a reflection of a broader movement and ideals and seeing that sort of the micro and the macro simultaneously. And really, um, there's something really important there about attention to individuals and the sacred beauty of individuals and not losing sight of that as we get swept up into ideas and ideals. Um, and for me, part of what Michael represented and what the integral left represents is really having that sort of holonic um, sense of reality where we don't we're not just getting caught up in the left and the ideas and ideals of the left but we're actually still really sensitive to embodied unique beings um, and as Brent said you know Michael both had that that academic intellectual side understanding history really well understanding ideas really well being able to communicate big pictures but also like the laughter and the and the love, right? And and the 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 third way that we're kind of trying to open up that's that's outside of the polarities. It's a way of love, right? It's a way of critical, cogent, coherent love, and that those interpersonal relationships are so important. And I did not know Michael at all, but it's been touching for me to see the personal depth of connection that he had with so many people. Um, and that's really what, that's really what um, translates. And I think we all need to keep that in mind when we think about how to transform systems, how to transform the world, you know, how to be of service to the world as a whole. We can't lose sight of the macro and the care that we have to take with our relationships and with our communication and with the way that we listen to each other and speak to each other and ability to not lose our sense of humor, right? All those qualities are so important. Um, and in attention to the process, you know, like I, I often am, am thinking and talking about education. And one, one thought I have in education is attention to process leads to exceptional outcomes, right? And I think in politics, it's similar where it's like, we can't lose sight of how we're doing things and not just being focused on what we want and why we want it. There's a lot of sort of intellectual, great analysis about what we should be doing and why. Um, and, 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 and in many ways, part of the legacy that we need to carry forth is figuring out how to explain ever better and how to communicate ever better, how to transmit what we should be doing and why, but recognizing also that it's just this process that we're engaged in and how we engage that process with other people is really, really, really so important. And for me, that's kind of what landed in my, in my heart and gut as I was reflecting on Michael was not, like I resonate with so much of the ideas and the content, but really seeing how somebody was able to pierce through a lot of bullshit and pierce through into the heart of other people so effectively through that engagement and that warmth and that care and that humor 
is um it's 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 just so important so it's something to that i'm reflecting on and just sitting with and and, and keeping in mind as i think about how i want to move forward and how i want to be of service right to keep coming back to that micro scale of how i'm relating to people beautifully said brother thank you so much yeah really uh heartfelt words um matt or layman guys want to jump in yeah right i i was not really prepared for how how moved i was going to feel about michael's death it's not something i mean you don't think about his death coming <laughs> so you're not prepped for it the amount of energy that's in my throat and heart the last couple of days um I was talking to Brent this morning about this. I'm going to have to do some kind of improvised shamanic ritual or something later today to deal with this because the forefront of my psyche is not handling it adequately. And I've got to take it to a deeper level of myself to make sense of what's going on. Whatever's happening here with Michael is happening at a level deeper than the level that I'm currently aware of in myself. So I'm very, I'm very curious about that. And I want to take that seriously. You know, when I think about him, there's a mix of appreciation and a sense of being ripped off. Like obviously his personal qualities and his clarity and radiance and humor and balance and bringing a meta perspectival and meditative approach to advanced leftist political dialogue, hugely important. But he seemed like he had such a future and it seemed like we all had such a future with him as well. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I still feel like I'm just getting to know him and his work. So there's a sense of a ripoff of a future that I expected there, which is irritating. And yet, understandably, we've all got to be that future ourselves now. I think he did a really good job of making um, political leftist clarity accessible to people from higher discussion spaces. Because when they see a guy who seems good humored and reasonable and open to things, I mean, we don't all have to be that way. We need some attack dog Brent Cooper at times. But there's a lovely position that Michael held that made people feel like it was okay to start investigating those themes and taking them seriously and sort of outing themselves as people who instinctively believed in those things. And I think he also was a good, a good teacher in a way he exemplified the skill set that we need in order to advance leftist politics. We have to, we, we have to be and train each other to be a lot of the things that he was in his affect and in his clarity and in the way he was with people in order to move this project forward. Thank you. And, and um, just to follow up on that, Layman, do you, do you have um, a specific uh, project or, or vision that you're, you're doing that you see yourself um, taking forward that could be in the spirit of Michael's work? I mean, I, I could apply his spirit to a whole bunch of things I'm doing. I think that you know, working in discussion with people is something that he was really good at. And I think that that's an absolutely essential part of what I'm doing. And to me, it seems more and more the heart of what I'm doing. Like it's when I write things, it's more to clarify my own position so that I have that position to be in the next conversation is what it seems like. So I think that his move toward this kind of, uh, internet discussion space really speaks volumes. And I think that's where I'm going. And I think that's where a lot of us are going in terms of putting our efforts. Awesome, <clears throat> excuse me. Great, thank you. Uh, Matt, do you have 
Sure. Thanks, Ryan, for inviting me. And it's um, really uh, a deep honor to be able to participate uh, with the five of you and remembering someone um, who, unlike a few of you, I didn't know personally either, um, like Layman. I uh, actually just started really exposing myself to Michael's work like three or four months ago. And I was just beginning to uh, increase the, um, you know, rate at which I was consuming his, his show and his streams, like in the few days before he passed. And uh, I'm still kind of in a state of denial. And, you know, I'm like binging all of his impression videos and um, reading all these tributes that are pouring in, getting a real sense for who he was as a person, how he was trying to lift up other people around him. Um, and, you know, what, what really um, excited me about his, his approach when I first listened to his show uh, only a few months ago, right, was the way that he brings um, a keen a political critique from the left of, of our dominant uh, political economy and the electoral political charade we have in this country his international view, but even beyond just the politics of it, the way that he brought um, heart and like deep kindness, uh, the ability to listen. I mean, I think he's really good at impressions because he's really good at listening, um, even to people he hates because he doesn't allow the hatred to overcome his sense of who that person is. And, you know, like, I think maybe he would say he hates ideas, not people. He says, be ruthless to institutions, not, you know, be kind to people. Uh, and so it's like his politics, his intellect, and his his spirit, his the way that he was willing to say, "Hey, we need spirituality uh, in our leftist politics," and um, that is so important and so valuable. And I'm so glad that he engaged as deeply as he did with the intellectual dark web. Um, that that couldn't just you know a lot of the sort of liberal neoliberal elite journalists were just like, oh, that's below me. I can't, I'm not even going to stoop to that level. And so meanwhile, fucking Jordan Peterson's taking over um, the imaginations of 20-something potential leftist uh, people, right? So, so important that he engages with that. And I think, you know, speaking of the importance of spirituality and in, in politics that Michael was trying to, and increasingly becoming more vocal about, you know, what do we do with death? What do we make of death? And how do we imagine the position that individuals take in the collective um, mind in the collective psyche after they die like Michael's not gone especially given all of the content that's out there for people to find Michael Brooks for the first time and have plenty of stuff to really learn about what it was that he was trying to do in the world and hopefully get on board with that project um, so you know his body has left his virtual avatar will be there and his, his colleagues will continue his show and, and his ideas live on in us. And so, you know, I feel a, a real sense of, um, I feel emboldened and I feel the strength uh, of his soul. Um, you know, his, his, body, his body just gave out and these bodies are fragile, and, but his soul is strong and he's still with us. Uh, so let's keep doing this work. Uh, that's kind of how I feel about it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. <clears throat> yeah. Um, 
I'll jump in here. I actually feel kind of nervous for some reason, but I think what you just shared, Matt, has a lot of synergy with what I was thinking about. And I remember when I first um, found out about Michael, it was it was about him uh, dunking on Dave Rubin. It's kind of how he established a reputation in leftist online circles. And also his critiques of the IDW and also of Sam Harris and you know, Peterson, all those guys. Um, and then when I met Jeremy, uh, we were talking on Discord when we, when we first joined uh, Jeremy, and I was so shocked to hear that he was an integralist. He was a, maybe a closeted undercover integralist who wasn't very explicit with that line of philosophy. But um, I, was, I was so stunned. And then I watched you uh, interview him on your Mutations podcast. And that was like a weird mind warp of, of two worlds that I had formerly segregated, collided. And I was like, I, I can't believe this. This is, And so I, I became um, very interested in his work. And I, immediately I was astounded and, and so surprised at the level of philosophical rigor. I mean, this guy is bringing up Amartya Sen in, in leftist critiques. And, you know, I tried reading one of Amartya Sen's books a couple of years ago, and I understood about 10%. It was, it was a slog. And I, I was so... Um, grateful for how, you know, in these leftist uh, media ecologies, he's bringing such a, a deep philosophical and international uh, analysis, uh, which was, which had quite a different tone than, a, you know, other um, outlets like the Young Turks, for example, right? So, so I was, I was immediately drawn in by that. And obviously, you know, he was, he was very funny, like his Obama impersonation is like one of my favorite <laughs> impersonations and incredibly talented individual. Um, and what I really appreciated about Michael was his integrity. And he was the absolute opposite of a hack, right? He would criticize his own side, knowing that he would take some flack for it or take some heat for it. But he always stood by his values and stood up for what was right and what he believed in. And I think he became, as you, know, as you were telling me, Jeremy, he became more and more frustrated with some of the extra excesses and extremes of cancel culture and, and the left. And he would voice these criticisms and he would get some flack for it. Um, but he would always promote a, a very clear and very deeply inspired positive vision of what the left could be in the affirmative. You know, and, and Kyle Kulinski was doing a little reflection on Brooks and Kyle was saying that some of their differences were that Michael just seemed to have a deeper hope for and deeper um, sense of optimism about human nature and what, and what humans can be spiritually and, and our potential. And so some of the long-term goals that he was advocating for, such as the eventual dissolution of, of like national borders, what was really grounded in the spirit of an integral cosmopolitan socialist, internationalist, global worker solidarity movement. And what I would feel most inspired to carry forward in terms of the spirit of his work is the integral part and the spiritual part and, and also the Buddhist uh, interest that he's always had as kind of an implicit framework that informed his, his thinking and also as people here have mentioned how he related to people from, from the heart and, and sense of empathy that he valorized and very much appreciated talking about people like Cornell West and, and, and the spirit of Cornell West spirituality right? the, the, the Christianity agape love that he seems to exude and everyone can can feel that when he says when he says things like, you know, hey brother, you know, it, it penetrates into the soul. And Michael Brooks felt that, and he appreciated that, and he transmitted that, and he emphasized that we shouldn't try to work towards embodying that. And of course, towards you know, um, 
and in the last few months, it, it seemed like he was doing more and more integral live streams and explicitly talking about Wilbur and Gebser and, and the comment section on, on those YouTube videos was so inspiring and so heartening to me that more of his audience was becoming interested in these things that were normally relegated to new age woo or just completely outside of the Overton window. And so it, an integration was definitely uh, burgeoning and, and in the midst of really happening until his very unfortunate passing. And I, I had this, this, this strange feeling of like, on a weird karmic cosmic level, somehow this is all meant to be. And we're kind of blessed with his spirit and of continuing his line of work. Um, because I mean, like, I can't believe it was him. And like, it could have been anyone else, but the one person that us in, in these integral circles had the most connection to personally and philosophically, he had, had to pass away at such a random and, and you know, I just, my, I'm just, like Layman was saying, like, I just did not process this in a conscious, rational level, you know. But to really continue his work and to emphasize the role of love, um, consciousness development, integral theory, and I think um, to bring that more to the forefront now, to really build a community and movement around these concepts is what I'm feeling most inspired to really um, take forward. And, uh, and just as a side note, you know, I think that, uh, sorry, my goats are like going off. Um, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson and obviously like more traditional conservatives talk a lot about Christianity and, and try to integrate Christianity into their politics and sense of sense making. And I think that the Buddhism could angle, it could also be interesting as Buddhism is a much more, you know, mainstream uh, religion or philosophy than integral theory. And I think that Buddhism has a lot of constants with leftist theory and understanding uh, you know, the interconnectedness of all of us, and the radical empathy and compassion towards all beings and how we can serve them through policy um, and alleviate suffering that way. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in that angle as well. And um, yeah, I just, and, and thank you to, to all of you um, for coming on today. And, and I'm, I'm really honored uh, to be talking to, to all of you and to see how heartfelt your responses were. And all of you guys here are just like some of the smartest MFers I've ever met in my life. So I'm really grateful and uh, I'll pass it to Jeremy. Thank you, Ryan. Um, uh, all of you have, have articulated uh, Michael's contributions to this world. I, I guess, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll just mention at the outset, it was, it was sort of interesting how we met. Um, I hadn't, I, I had known about him in the, in the sort of periphery of our, of our network. And he reached out to me on Facebook Messenger one day. And I was like, oh yeah, Michael Brooks, I've been friends with him for like 10 years or something. He's like in the integral community. I know he's been doing political stuff. That was like 2015, I guess, 2016. Um, and he's like, yeah, I really like that you're into like James Hillman and William Owen Thompson and Linda's Farn Man. I'm like, whoa, who is this guy? Like, and why do we have the same interests? Uh, and then I see how much he's, you know, He's got the show and he's interested in leftist politics and he has a brilliant intellect himself and he is absolutely hilarious. Um, so I just had a natural immediate affinity to his project and himself as a human being. Um, and the correspondence continued until eventually he was like, call in, let's let's have you, have you on the show and talk about integral theory. And I, I, I love the, first of all, his background, you know, his his foundation, which was always there and I think, you know, has come to the forefront now that he has passed, was the spiritual, you know, like, uh, it's so interesting in our, in our private conversations, he would bring up 
meditation retreats he's been on. And he would ask me about my own practice. And this was something that was crucial to any kind of work that he did as a semi-public figure, as a political thinker. You know, this was integral to him as a human being. Um, so I was just so interested in that. And I, and I, and I feel like, you know, seeing the, 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 the wave of, of support and solidarity and love for him and his contributions um, has really been heartening to see, you know, all of these pundits start talking about spiritual is important. It was important to Michael. We should really start thinking about it. Um, that being decent to each other, you know, is, is, it's a spiritual practice. And he really brought that to the forefront. He made it integral to his work. Um, and as we, you know, would say in, in the integral theory community, we talk about world centrism, right? We talk about planetary culture. That was a, a phrase that, um, uh, William Irwin Thompson had popularized and Michael was very interested in Thompson's work. Um, th this is what he tried to embody and, and, and live. And I, like the rest of you are saying, I was so impressed by how far he got as a brilliant, hilarious, heartfelt person to be able to just win you over with all these other ideas, let alone win you over into internationalism. Um, Anna Kasparian was just mentioning that in, in her live stream earlier today. Like he would just win you over with his views. You would suddenly be an internationalist talking with him and engaging with him. And I, and I was thinking, well, he won you over because he won you over with your own humanity, right? So I was just so impressed how he was able to do this. And part of that was this integral vision, right? Like integral to his capacity to win people over with these values was this sort of integral world-centric planetary vision of what humanity could be. Um, so it was always there. It was always in his work. And I was so excited to see, especially in our, in our um, recent conversations, um, the, the pivoting he was planning to do, right? It was only getting started, right? Um, which again, like, like Ryan, you're saying it, it, there's, there's a part of this that just seems, seems so unreal. Like we, we should be able to hit a reset button this week and go like, no, that's not how reality should unfold. There's so much more to do. And I guess I'm sort of left feeling that like, we lost a member of our of our superhero team here. And it's like, how, we're not the same without him going forward, but the work is still there. And I guess I, I'm trying to navigate that complex feeling of, of, of losing a friend and then losing an ally in this work. You know, it's, it's not easy, but um, I want to think about how we can move it forward. And like, I guess, Ryan, with your uh, last question, um, the second question. We had just been talking on the phone like two weeks ago about like, he's telling me all these, like, I'm so excited. We're going to do all this new stuff with the show. We're going to bring Integral more to the forefront. I want to pick your brain about like who we can have on about this, like who, who we can kind of carefully navigate, strategically introduce, you know, to the left community. Um, and that was really important for him too, right? Like, not so much as a gatekeeper, but he really needed this to be grounded in understanding material politics, right? Really having a solid foundation in leftist theory for him was the, 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 the gateway into talking about internationalism, planetary culture, spirituality, and it was, we could do it, right? And he was doing it. So he saw this as his next phase. And I, 
I want to continue, continue that somehow. Um, you know, hopefully, I, I know uh, Alicia Brooks has been mentioning uh, after this period of, of, of mourning and, and recollecting that uh, her and um, the TMBS crew are going to be setting up a foundation or, or some kind of platform to continue Michael's work. So um, I, I, I'm hoping to be able, and maybe as a project for all of us to contribute to how integral fits into that vision, you know, because I know he would want us to keep having these conversations, keep collaborating with each other, you know, like Brent, he was like a couple of weeks ago, he was, he was asking about you. He was just so good. You know, he was like, how's Brent doing? I know there's been a lot of drama going on in the emergency. And then we ended up talking about drama in all these leftist communities. And he was just so considerate and caring and just the basis of his everything he was doing you know he was asking about you asking about me sending me texts like how you doing man brother brother always brother he like he won me over to his friendship by just being so kin like you know and his and his um friendship with me but anyway i, I could just keep going <laughs> uh i feel like the work really has only gotten started and um as you're saying, Ryan, maybe somehow the, the silver lining through all this is a deep clarity about what that work really is and how much we all need to be working together for it, you know? So I'll just, I'll just pause here. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Uh, unless you want to take us in a certain direction, I just wanted to comment and amplify something Jeremy was saying. Oh, please do. That's the direction I want to go in next. So it seems to me that like um, it just I felt like it was important to amplify the international s scope of of Michael's vision because, um, you know, I, I've just recently, in addition to binging on a lot of Michael's uh, impression uh, videos and, and reading all these tributes to him, I've been looking at um, taking seriously enough to, to, to read some of the material like Alexander Dugin and these neo-reactionaries and um, these um, dark enlightenment folks uh, who um, are threatening to really, you know, take the ball and run with it uh, in terms of what comes after the American era of world dominance, because that's collapsing really quickly. And Michael, in trying to push our understanding of what it means to be politically left to an international scope, I think he's providing, it was providing a necessary check to these other very dark forces. Um, you know, uh, Alexander Dugan is a, is a black magician. And unless we are willing to take, um, you know, material conditions are important and you can't do better than Marx's critique um, on the level of material production and how certain kinds of psychology are reproduced and, and individuality are reproduced in the context of the capitalist mode of production. But there's also another pull. There's the spiritual pull. And it's just as fucking real as the material pull. And, you know, the Nick Lands and Alexander Dugans of the world are very aware of how the psychological domain can be manipulated. And unless we're willing, I think, to, uh, uh, to take it seriously enough that, you know, the type of work that Michael is doing as a journalist um, 
was, you know, different than the way that the average neoliberal journalist who has a pretense to like neutrality and as if journalism is just about fact checking or something, if that's the approach that the left takes, we're going to lose because we're fighting against literal black magicians. Right. And so I feel like there's a, there's a calling, you know, Michael was calling me um, as I was understanding um, some of his work to a deeper engagement with the spiritual dimension of politics, not in, um, not, not uh, instead of looking at the material conditions, um, but right alongside of it, because, you know, why hasn't the Marxist revolution happened yet? There, there's gotta be something missing, you know? And I think, um, you know, the reason we're trying to uh, talk about the left in the context of integral philosophy is I think, well, what, what is it that's missing? And maybe we can contribute something to that. So anyways, um, I just, I wanted to amplify the internationalist scope because the alternative is uh, uh, fascism. <laughs> Um, you know, because with ecological crisis, with the ecological crisis unfolding, there's a there's going to be a temptation for national like groups and, and ethnic groups to like retreat and like put up borders and like, you know, try to secure as many resources as they can and batten down the hatches. And if we don't have an international vision to prevent that sort of thing, I feel like that's what the default movement of humanity is going to be retreat instead of you know forward into a world-centric consciousness a planetary consciousness so just wanted to amplify that yeah thank you matt i just want to briefly uh amplify or amplification um i think michael's work on internationalism the way he the way he designed his show was the only way to answer these problems is to have an internationalist mindset from the get-go and learn from what's going on in Brazil, right? Learn from what's going on in Europe, cross, um, build a network. He, he's a word in our in our first podcast together. He said um, a planetary meshwork of um, anti-capitalist, pro-Marxist, pro-human people trying to problem-solve a lot of these issues with there is very local contextual historical issues that you know brazil may be facing that we aren't facing in the united states but there are also similarities right because we're all dealing with uh neoliberal capitalism we're all dealing with the the climate crisis the creeping up of uh crypto fascism uh so the only way to solve it is to solve it together in solidarity with everyone else around the planet. So really, you know, the, the response and the answer, and not only the goal is to have that internationalist mindset to think in a way that's strategic enough, right? And robust enough and networked enough to begin to address these problems. Um, and that was just really inspiring. You know, I, I think the fact that when, when Michael did pass away, I mean, no, Twitter is just a sample, but he was trending in Brazil. He was trending in France. He was trending all around the world in the different uh, Twitter communities. So, you know, I, I think it's a testament to how much he did that work to be an internationalist thinker and activist. So, Yeah, the international part is uh, hugely important and not just because uh, the ethical move of solidarity and the scope move of the world-centric vision, but also because we have to see 
multiple variations of the phenomenon play out in order to be able to extract the abstract principles uh, that are at work. Like in order to figure out what really is the underlying mechanism that is the progressive shift and what really is the underlying mechanism that defines you know, the modern neoliberal status quo. Right? A lot of people have done a lot of good work on that, but there's still a lot of room to make discoveries and for each individual to get more and more clear about what those things are. And you can't get that clarity if you're only looking at one example, right? If you just know one country's situation, then really you don't know any country's situation. You've got to see it play out in different ways to figure out what is the essence of what's really going on in these processes. <clears throat> um, I want to pick up on that. Um, there's a few of a lot there and everything that's been said, and I appreciate your guys is reflections and solidarity. <clears throat> um, I studied international relations over 10 years ago now. And so that's a, that's a, a focus of my whole project. And, you know, it's a discipline in its own right. And it's, it's very complex and evolving. And I, I think Michael studied it too. And, you know, I think we were destined to cross paths. And actually I, I found out through listening to uh, so much of his content, I found out at one point when he was on somebody else's podcast, um, he got into LSE the same year that I went there. <clears throat> and, you know, he had a choice. He, he could have gone there and, and studied IR <clears throat> further, but he, but he had, uh, you know, other choices and, you know, difficult choices to make and he chose to pursue work. And I, I think that worked out for him and I choose to pursue academia to some extent. And so, so we missed each other there, but, uh, would, but would kind of converge later. And it's interesting to me, you know, cause I, I studied IR, but also kind of politics focus. And I never thought I could be a pundit. I never wanted to be, or a journalist. I don't have those skills, that capacity, cause it's a different thing. Right. So I chose, chose the more scholarly path and, I think Brooks chose the more kind of public facing side of things. And I don't like to be a news junkie. You know, there's a lot of crap out there. I think 90 to 99% of political discourse is nonsense. It, it's counterproductive. It's, it's, it's poisoned. Uh, and so it's very difficult to cut through it. And that's why I look for, for special commentators that can do that because it's incredibly hard. <clears throat> and so Michael could do that like no other. You know, I think he rose above the left in that in that uh, dimension, and and so I I take in a lot of you know different content and news, but I focused on his show and his communication because it was the highest signal to noise ratio. <clears throat> um, and so because of what I studied, you know, I was already radicalized. Michael Brooks didn't radicalize me, thankfully. He did radicalize lots of other people, but I recognized in him kind of that that background and that meta perspective and you know he would focus the international over kind of globalism right because this is the kind of uh, a point of contention where people kind of lose their minds over oh you're focusing too much on the global or you know we need to go back to the local it's always the whole thing right and i wanted to pick up on you know jeremy and ryan <clears throat> the connection you make with integral because that's I, I don't have such an integral background, but I am versed in it. And I appreciated that in Michael because of the spaces I've been in, it's been dominated by centrists or apolitical or anti-political or reactionary people in that integral tradition. And 
you know, Ken Wilber is one of one of the influences on those negative trends. And Michael was always clear about that when he brought up integral that like, don't get your politics from Ken Wilber. And so, so the, 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 the manifold tragedy here is like, we're, we're so, we're so behind the times, like we're, we're so behind schedule. I mean, we're, we're ahead of the times, but we're behind schedule in this project. And when I discovered the, the integral crossover, you know, through, through Jeremy's podcast and through some other sources, I, I really hooked into that and tried to promote that into the, into the meta modern and integral communities so that they would actually listen. And what I found extra tragic is that a lot of people didn't listen. They, they didn't get hooked in. And so, you know, that's why I say we're behind schedule in that sense, because there's still so much to learn and to teach uh, to, to these uh, the centrist and reactionary kind of trends, because, you know, I don't like drama either, but fundamentally the, these conflicts are underpinned by epistemic contradictions right that there are answers to if we talk it out if we if we you know and inspire others to to um be vulnerable like we can actually build kind of consensus and and cut through the noise better so so we've got to do that because because like like you said ryan like you know you you discovered that that extra stuff through through jeremy it didn't always come through on his show but you would hear this complexity when he would talk to other people, you know. So it was it was great in that sense. And coming back just to to close on this idea of solidarity, which you mentioned, Jeremy, that's that's incredibly important. Obviously, just in in basic leftist, socialist, sociological terms. But it 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 means extra to me because I've been sick for many years, and you know, so kind of a a margin. You know, get into a marginalized category. So, you know, it's important to stress this part of the, the left and the spiritual that we really mean solidarity with everybody. And that means speaking on behalf of people that can't speak for themselves or lifting up those improv impoverished people or marginalized voices. And, you know, um, I, I had an opportunity in 2018 to, to physically meet Michael because I got accepted to a conference uh, which was actually about critiquing Jordan Peterson and that was that was very exciting to bring a bunch of people together just to critique Peterson because because there was already a bit of a consensus on the left that this guy in, in many in many ways at least in terms of political commentary is 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 a nut job he's he's a wackadoodle and you know, I've I've consumed Peterson's books and content, and I've 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 embraced the the sensible aspects of it, and I've I've critiqued and and dismantled the the uh, kind of reactionary and incoherent aspects of it, you know. And you know, I just wish we could have amplified that that more because, like like you guys said, you know, the the liberal kind of centrist mainstream just got carried away with that whole intellectual dark web thing and you know, trying to do serious political work and serious academic work, and then the intellectual dark web comes along. And it's really kind of a sideshow that's taking up all this kind of oxygen in the room and, and uh, an attention span. Um, you know, it's extra work to go off into these little side battles, but but Michael did it. And, and I tried to do it too. And, 
you know, I, I saw many, many other leftists doing it. And there really was a, a solidarity there and there always is, but we need to kind of just foreground that more and articulate it even more because, you know, those guys still don't care. You know, I, I, I hate to say it, but Eric Weinstein tweeted out to Sam Cedar his condolences and, and, he, and he said in the tweet, like, I'm, I'm blocking Sam just to do this. And I found it a little bit repulsive quite frankly, because, uh, you know, Weinstein's never going to engage the content. Never. He, ne he never has and he never will. And that's, that bespeaks to the hypocrisy of that whole project and why it's not, in fact, intellectual. It's intelligent, it's pseudo-intellectual, and in some very important ways, it's anti-intellectual. And it's always been my mission, and I hope I can live up to Brooks's legacy to, to, to carry forward, but to, to try to cut through that noise and to lift up the marginalized voices that are pushed out by those types of people in the center and the mainstream that stand for almost nothing. Well said, man. Uh, Brad, were you gonna say something? Mm, I was, I was gonna take it in a somewhat different direction. Um, so I'll just briefly share a thought that I had with the thread around internationalism, and I was thinking of it in terms of bringing together this, this international impulse um, with the spiritual. And one way that I think about it is um, being in solidarity with you know, a range of perspectives and realities internationally, both across space, but also across time, right? And across mind, like different structures of mind that have unfolded. And, and one, tendency that I see in the integral community is a focus on, for instance, like traditional modern postmodern, right? But even in that frame, like a lot is left out and there's a lot actually on the margins, both um, in terms of contemporary cultures and in terms of historically, like different ways of being in the world and different ways of thinking um, that are not fully captured by those, by those discrete um, structures. So it makes me think about, you know, the integral impulse more fully embracing and coming to solidarity with an even broader range across the whole spectrum of possibilities of how to make sense of the world and how to be in the world, thinking specifically of indigenous cultures, current and past, and what we can learn from them and how we can cultivate a sort of integral, an integral indigeneity where we're actually including more than just traditional modern and postmodern as they've manifested in the modern world system, right? Because the part of the integral analysis too is like seeing into the depths of how, of how rotten to the core the sort of capitalist modern world system is and, and, and getting a sense of whether we can even really achieve our goals and our ideals, you know, as a dialectical development from this world system that we're in, or if there's some other sort of radical tangential orthogonal breakout needs needs to happen. Um, and another point that comes up for that too is getting a sense of how, again, back to the, this like solidarity with the whole world also embedded in a spirituality, like having a sense of how what we need on an individual and collective level isn't just more cognitive development either, that like there's another trend and sort of integral theory to focus on stages and think about levels of cognition and, you know, dialectics, but, we really need a deep existential 
liberation and reintegration and not just ongoing cognitive development. And it's just something I've personally been reflecting on recently in terms of the degree to which we can really um, actualize our, our ideals, you know, as uh, in continuity with, with what is so firmly established in terms of globalization and capitalism, or do we actually need to learn from our like pre-traditional cultures even maybe in terms of how to be more like uh, bioregionally intelligent, right? And having a more decentralized vision. So for me, when I think of internationalism, I'm going to like a sort of decentralized understanding of many different ways of being, um, both understanding how like the modern world system has totally penetrated the life world of cultures across different societies and like getting that, like fully getting that, but then also looking to the wisdom of, of like truly diverse peoples across space and time. And for me, that's a, it's a spiritual impulse and it's a political impulse and it's a historically well-informed um, perspective that all has to kind of come together somehow. Yeah, if I may, I'd love to jump in there and uh, follow up on some of those points, Brad. I, I think um, I appreciate everything you were saying. And I, I also feel like um, I want to speak to a potential danger or maybe it's a temptation in integral theory and this understanding of the evolution of consciousness it, is that it can sometimes become a bit idealistic in the sense that it's a foregone conclusion that we will continue up this spiral. I would, I would suggest that, uh, and here Marx isn't even the best, um, that his, history is, is deeply contingent. Marx seemed to have an understanding of history that it would unfold necessarily in a particular direction. I don't know if that that's necessarily the case. He was, Marx was still a little too Hegelian in that sense, maybe. And integral theory, I think, has some of that idealism in it where, um, you know, so, so when we talk about traditional societies and modern societies and postmodern um, or consciousness instead of societies, there's always an infrastructure in place, a social uh, and material set of conditions that supports that mode of consciousness. Um, you know, for the traditional, it's like the home and the family and for the modern, it's the whole fucking economy and for, and politics and for the postmodern, it's the universities. What's the equivalent for integral consciousness? Where is, what's the material and institutional and social context within which integral consciousness can really be maintained? I mean, maybe that's what Michael was trying to build. Maybe that's what we're trying to build, uh, starting just as a tentative like networking. Uh, but until we have that infrastructure in place, um, our integral consciousness is going to be very kind of um, flimsy and and unstable and you know flickering in and out and like sometimes we're there and sometimes we're not like and so I think that's what we need to be building is the infrastructure for this type of consciousness to emerge and, and wield power. Michael was always harping on the need for leftists to be more Machiavellian. Uh, in their dealings with institutions, in particular modern and postmodern institutions, because it's if we if we don't wield power effectively, we're going to remain <laughs> impotent, right? Purely ideas, interesting maybe, but powerless. So, um, yeah, just 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 wanted to say I think we're at a a point now in history where things could go in a number of different directions, and we shouldn't rest assured that oh yeah, the evolution of Consciousness will continue and the spirals, the momentum just gonna launch us into a wonderful teal 
future. It's like, no, that might not happen at all. This whole project of civilization might come crashing down. Uh, and so, you know, if anything, what Michael's death is doing for me is reminding me that this is the moment, that this is urgent, you know? So just wanted to throw that into the mix. Well said, Matt. Um, yeah, I wanna, I wanna chime in as well with a few points that have been made. Uh, one is, yes, the, the, the tenuousness of history. Um, both John Gepser and Sphere Rabindo were very articulate about how tenuous this project of, of consciousness evolution was in terms of it could all fall apart. And maybe it will continue elsewhere if we believe the universe has this sort of emergent complexity. There's no guarantee that Earth is the place where that will be realized, you know? So, I mean, it leaves so much up to us, that tenuousness. It leaves so much participation and trust and vulnerability up to us. But as you're saying, Matt, also a deep sense of urgency that we need to act then we need to build this and we need to be smart in a material sense because it's these material conditions um that that make this so complex and tenuous we really need to know what we're doing you know it can't be idealistic it has to be i mean this is something michael was was reiterating in like almost all of his streams these past few months after uh, Bernie loss. We need to build a labor movement. You know, There needs to be a Machiavellian strategy for the left to make their opposition, to make you know resistance have to yield. And that means strategy. That means organization on the ground. That means knowing our theory very well. And that also means corroborating on a planetary scale with similar struggles. And that's where his internationalism came in. So, I mean, I think he, he uh, Brooks gave us a, a kind of template for how we go about building that resilient, integral oriented thinking. And it's not here yet, but he, you know, there, the template is there. And I do think that the tenuousness should be held in mind at all times for sure. Um, like, like one note about Gepser, you know, he often would write in, in, in a, some manner of words that, you know, integral as, as, as a reality is here and we can either fulfill it or it will fulfill us, right? Like this new complexity in this new world and its challenges in terms of planetary dynamics, climate crisis, the, the end of, you know, this period of globalization and modernization, it's already here. What are we going to deal do with that? That could be the end of us and any kind of constructive and regenerative future, or we could step into that and, and work to realize that, you know, as, as an incarnation, as a material struggle that is also spiritual. So, you know, I think, I think having all of this in mind is just, I guess I'm just in a resounding resonance with what, you all are saying here so so much um embodiment missing in the world and also in the history of philosophies and spiritualities and political attempts that we need to correct by you know returning like brad was saying to a, a moral and existential development not just an ability to recognize cognitively more complex patterns 
that's also the embodiment is where we enter into solidarity with each other it's also the material world in which we enter into actual political structures <laughs> that change people's lives but the problem with embodiment is that there are these squeamish feelings that go with it that we recoil from whether it's personal psychotherapeutic resistances to being fully embodied and fully in our emotions um, or whether it's a reluctance to view our own moral contradictions or contradictions between our political ideals and our actual behavior that we, we live out. Right? We don't want to see, we don't want to be in the crunch of those feelings. And on the left, there's also this additional squeamishness about power and about privilege, which is to say there's something we don't like about trying to take power. There's something we don't like about privileging each other, right? Even if it was what's the infrastructure to set up to support an integral culture? Well, that means integral people have to be preferentially favoring each other when it comes to power and wealth. But how do we feel about that? It feels a little bit weird. It's not our initial impulse. So there may be a, a whole set of squeamishnesses that we have to overcome to be embodied, to be political, to be morally advancing, and also to be willing to make moves to take power. And, and to create conditions for other people to become integral, like making higher education tuition free for everyone and making, you know, increasing material conditions so people can move up the ladder, right? Yeah, so there's a lot of, lot of great, I really like the, the direction this conversation has gone in. And um, just to riff off what you were saying earlier, Matt, about having a kind of institutional or infrastructural grounding rod to ground the lofty free-floating integral consciousness that's just budding now budding into a real grounded material reality and to instantiate our values principles and philosophies in something concrete is really a huge founding impetus of why i started this podcast and to really explore in more um detail the lower right quadrant and the effects that that has on our consciousness and the way that we can consciously develop integrally informed and metamodern uh, institutions and, and networks. And in some ways, I think that if anyone were to um, use integral theory, I think that Michael Brooks was probably one of the best people to really balance out some of the weaknesses of, of Wilbur's articulation of integral theory and that Michael is a lower right quadrant expert par excellence, right? I mean, his understanding of the forces and dynamics of material reality, economics, class, all from a very deeply informed and philosophically robust Marxist perspective uh, was a beautiful counterbalance to some of the upper left quadrant idealism or solipsism or over, not necessarily overemphasis on spirituality or religion because I, I respect that very much as Ken Wilber's genius as the Einstein of consciousness. But let's be honest, politics in the lower right quadrant was not his forte. And, and for Michael to have internalized integral theory and then strained it through such a a intricate, intricate understanding of, of uh, material reality and politics, I think was absolutely exquisite to counterbalance some of our, uh, you know, the tendency for some of the integral movement to lean too much towards spirituality and internal work. And, and so I think as part of the next step um, that we can take is really about how can we really develop these, these institutions and a lot of these, these um, ideas and really bring them into context like they, where they can be universalized and disseminated also to a larger audience you, you know maybe even implicitly as, as a back end 
and I was I just started reading Zach Stein's book, and he talks about uh, paideia or paideia, however you say it, right? The, the, this idea of education in, in in Greek, but it's more than just education and how we associated it with going to school as a ch as a child or going to college, right? So education as a kind of lifelong practice of learning and civic cultivation that we can that is integral to uh, the polis or and developing citizens in the polis. And I, I see a lot of confluency with that concept with the Bildung as well, you know, and, and the way that people like Bjorkman articulated Bildung and to have forms of civic education development where we can all as citizens work on developing our character, our consciousness, our perspective taking capacity and, and ability to hold more complexity so that we can have the best politics, um, you know, it can engender the most nuanced and robust form of politics uh, that we can create. So I, I, I very much respect Michael in that regard and, and think that as integralists, we need to you know, be aware of our, our blind spots. And I think binge watching Michael's show may, may be a good start to addressing some of those uh, shadow areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just, I wanna mention some of the, the context in which he was, um, because we're kind of riffing now on a little bit around integral theory and Wilbur. Brent mentioned earlier that, you know, we should, Michael always mentioned to don't listen to Wilbur's politics, but take Aquil. Like, look at Aquil, look at, look at the quadrants. Think about integrative thinking. How do we connect the dots better? How do we be less polarized, right? So he's very, he was very interested in those elements of integral theory and maybe not so much even the developmentalism, you know, um, because uh, I, I'm just connecting a link with what Brad said in terms of what is the spiritual turn in a, in a, um, uh, a, a, a cosmopolitan socialism. It's not something that looks exactly developmental, but it is something that is integrative in the sense of bringing back certain structures, bringing back different communities of practice and traditions that didn't go away. You know, so I think what I was excited about, and I think which is why he he resonated with some of my work with Gepser and our conversations together was different integrative models that would not, you know, reify the same kind of progressive narrative that modernity has, you know, kept very neatly for itself in terms of, you know, everyone's moving up the ladder, right? Um, and it's interesting in, in an integral leadership review journal issue that's coming out soon, um, there's an interesting conversation about Maslow. And actually the reading of Maslow is much more Gibsarian in a funny way than I had expected in that it's more about different existential dimensions of the human being that are all kind of simultaneously flexing in at play rather than seeing it as different steps going up and up and up. Um, so even apparently Maslow's kind of more subtle understanding of this was a little bit more complicated. So for sure, I think moving in this direction in terms of future projects, um, uh, an integrative approach wouldn't necessarily privilege uh, such a linear uh, narrative in terms of developmental stages. And we have to really consider that. Like if integral really wants to be on the table in, a, in an ecumenical and cosmopolitan way, it has to be more along the lines of, um, you know, the tradition of academic tradition talks about post-humanism, for instance, in Debashish Banerjee's work, um, or um, a number of other thinkers I've been, I've been examining lately in, in post-human studies. So, um, I'm just throwing that out there in this context of, okay, what does that spiritual left 
look like? And how do we make sure we don't carry the baggage of integral theory with us into, into that discussion? Yeah, I think part of that is bringing in other integrative models and trying to see what pieces they all have in common. Um, but a lot of it is also just getting more nuanced and sophisticated in the way that we appreciate those models, right? Like there's a lot of people who never get past the, the grade one introduction level to what developmental stages are supposed to mean. Right? We don't always think in terms of, yeah, there might be a trend line, but that doesn't mean it's not going to go back the other way for a thousand years, right? And that it's not level A and level B and level C, it's level A and level A and B and level A and B and C, there's all these nuances to it that people really aren't encouraged that much to try to appreciate. But if they did, they take it in a much broader direction with much less of a simplified kindergarten cookie cutter ladder picture, which is maybe a good way to entice people to get a general sense of it at the first step. But if you stay there, then you've got a real problem. I just also wanted to touch on something Ryan was saying about the lower right, because it seems to me there's a kind of trap people get into in the lower right, which is we need two complementary types of politics to make um, a wisdom civilization, let's say. You need on the one hand, social processes that are analogous in complexity to those that go on within the individuals who are cultivating wisdom in themselves. And you need social practices and policies that create the supportive conditions for that to happen. And those positions and policies are a lot simpler there's a lot of people crying out for them because it affects their immediate lives. And it's the absolute precondition for these other ones to come around. But a lot of our best thinkers try to speculate as to what the absolute most wonderful, advanced, integrative, developmental, multidimensional politics is going to be. And they use that as an excuse to attack people who support creating those basic conditions that everybody needs in order to get that project underway. I wanted to try to kind of sharpen and simplify what I see as the through line here, which is economic justice. So not, not to sidestep spirituality and all that, because I think that question is answered within the question of economic justice. And so broad, broadly, what I mean by that is, you know, since Occupy, the Occupy movement in 2011, inequality has increased. Right. And, and it, it's absurd because it was already at kind of extreme levels. And so how could that happen? Right. And, and how it happens is the discourse around economic justice gets, you know, overtaken by, by uh, in, in one sense, identity politics, but, but more specifically, just culture war noise. Right. And, and politicking. So all these different factions fighting for their interests without thinking about the big picture. And, you know, ironically, there's, there's conservatives like, like including Jordan Peterson, you know, he's hyper-capitalist. He, he doesn't want to kind of resolve uh, ec economic conditions by looking at the systemic factors. He wants to just sell bootstraps to people. Um, <clears throat> and, and so it should be simple. So I'm trying to simplify, you know, the through line is we need to, reduce inequality. But I say economic justice because it's not just about reducing inequality. It's about stopping the, the, the fraud and the extraction of capitalism, which, which violently takes wealth from, from people's labor and, and oppresses violently the resistance to get that value back in, you know, in, in just terms. So this should be a vision that 
everybody can get on board with. And yet that clear vision fails to, to crystallize and fails to get elected because of all the divisiveness of political discourse. So, um, so I wanted to say all that and also just touch on um, when, when, Ryan when Ryan said Wilbur was the Einstein of consciousness, immediately what popped into my head is, well, Einstein was a socialist. And that always gets glossed over in, in, his, in, in invoking him, right? He's always a, he's the most brilliant physicist, yes. But he didn't neglect his role as a public intellectual to advocate for socialism. And he was explicit about it, right? In the first issue of, uh, uh, the, what's it called? The Monthly Review, 1949, he wrote, Why Socialism? And it's just a basic advocacy for, for economic justice. And so this is, you know, this should be the mainstream, you know, when, when, when big think or, or physicists or whoever invokes Einstein, they need to realize what the legacy there is. It's the same legacy as Martin Luther King, right? And all, all these other great socialists. So, you know, I think a lot of this stuff is overthought. People overthink it and they, they get trapped in different levels of minutiae when <clears throat> really there's a deep, broad spiritual truth, economic truth behind all of this, that if we could just converge on that simplicity, we could work out a lot of the extraneous details and conflicts. Yeah, just to clarify the latter comment I made earlier, Benito Roy um, jumped on that in the uh, YouTube comments. Um, I was thinking more in terms of the economic ladder, not thinking of the evolution of consciousness as some kind of a ladder. Um, but in our society in the United States and in anywhere where neoliberal capitalism reigns, um, some people aren't even given the bottom rung. There is no bottom rung. Some people are just literally left on the street to die. And that the number of people being left on the street to die is increasing um, every day. I cannot believe it. You know, I live in a more rural area now, but when I drive back to Berkeley, uh, there are every every highway underpass is a literal is a tent city. Every single one. Um, so the ladder refers to lifting people up the ladder as these basic material conditions, because before that's in place, nothing else is possible except violent revolt, you know, which is what we have. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, yeah, to, to uh, echo both Matt and Brent, uh, Brent, I'm in deep agreement with you in terms of economic justice as the through line here. And, you know, anything that we're looking at, and I think this is what Michael was very interested in in our latter conversations, which was, what are the more regenerative post-capitalist models and initiatives that might need to be brought online right now, in addition to fighting for more labor, you know, uh, for in addition to um, working within, as they say in our communities, you know, game A in terms of the current paradigm in the system, absolutely we need to know and be literate what's going on there and participate in it. And absolutely we also need to be working on constructing these regenerative models and principles. And so within that um, uh, impetus or principle of economic justice, there are these other questions about, well, 
capitalism is extractive of meaning and human value. What does a culture look like in an economic that, that doesn't do that, right? And so some of these regenerative theories and principles sort of come into the forefront. And I guess I, I'm frustrated because we were so close to folding that into the conversation in a more, for the left anyway, for a more uh, a popularized platform to talk about was very exciting. Um, so I do hope that is a direction that continues to, to happen, whether it's through the TMBS Foundation or, or somewhere else, because, you know, um, spirituality is a question of, well, how do we live a life in, in a paradigm and a culture and an economics that does have human value, right? How do we bring back the commons? And that's what makes this very complex and sort of nonlinear in that sense of there's a lot that an industrial capital society has um, left us uh, bereft of or diminished the capacity of us to be more fully human as you know using Matt's metaphor of the latter right where's the foundation where's the human foundation of our society we're so extractive and abstract oriented um, so how do we come back down right um, how do we come back down and what does that paradigm look like how can we effectively um, be advocating for that, but not only that, but actually gaining headway, right? Like actually gaining traction, because that's what it really came down down to, a kind of pragmatic, radical, integral radicalism, I don't know, that Brooks was advocating for. So these are the questions, I guess, that are on, on, on my mind as we further this discussion in terms of how we go forward from here. Well, I can just say, if I can jump in, that, um, yeah, to follow that thread, it brings up for me the question of the possibilities for consensus and solidarity, right? And what, what are the conditions of possibility for meaningful consensus that's actually productive um, and constructive? And it, we have to sort of feel into how the possibilities for solidarity and large-scale coordination um, that would enable the emergence of some sort of metamodern democracy are dependent on culture and relationships, right? So really understanding that relationship is also part of the, the integral view and, and understanding the sense that we were experiencing a sort of legitimation crisis, right? Spread out across society and across a diversifying network of social groups that's also stacked on top of an increasingly sort of uh, homogenous forms of communication and sense-making, right? So it's like how the social media ecology is affecting language and discourse which affects the possibilities for relationship and solidarity which affects the possibilities for like political consensus and all these things are layered on top of each other and it just makes me really feel like again that the sort of shift from from having a i just i just can't get over how our our, our sort of models for a sort of large scale like nationwide cohesion our models for that historically are built on deeply unhealthy systems of oppression and conformity, right? Like the way that nation states have enabled solidarity is through like programming and oppression. And it's, it's, it's really hard to get a large group of people to actually be in consensus with each other. And the sort of counter move to that that I feel like we're feeling into in, in sort of small groups and subgroups is moving toward a more decentralized sort of uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's just happening in terms of sense-making is becoming more decentralized and there's many 
it's, it's, it's very fragmented. So this is part of our situation that's really problematic. And what, what is the open question for me is what are the possibilities for larger scale coherence and solidarity and like meta narrative? Is that even possible to have a meta narrative that really brings everybody together? Or are there ways in which it's actually not possible because it's, it's just, it's maybe like fundamentally, literally not possible. Mm -hmm. um, and one, one last thought on that too, is just thinking about like integral theory and like sense-making and meta-narrative, which I'm really drawn to, like having a, uh, a coherent comprehensive vision that really can include everyone and make sense of everything and sort of pull us all together. Um, it, it's a very, it's a meta view and it's not dependent on any particular context. It's sort of meta context, right? But the flip side of that would be uh, embodying more of a high context sense making, right? And, and, and sort of cultivating high context cultures of sense making that actually are connected to place and time and community and a sort of a, what, what, what Tyson Yucaporta calls field dependent reasoning, right? So not reasoning independent of a field of, of environment or discourse, but really getting into like right here, right now in this particular place, like what can we do as a community? Um, and for me, just the overwhelmingness of the pathologies of the social media ecology keep leading me in this direction of really more of like the game B archetype versus the sort of meta-modern archetype, right? Whereas for one, it's like the dialectical continuation of nation state development that would lead maybe from really pathological oligarchy to some sort of actual metamodern democracy that still is holding together hundreds of millions of people versus like experimental game offshoots that really have to get out of that whole paradigm. And it's, it's just hard for me to see how the spirit of both economic justice and spirituality can be manifested at the scale of a nation state. Sorry, that's a lot, but. No, um, just to say, respond to that really quickly, it's an interesting way to cut it in terms of thinking about some of the differences between metamodern politics and more game B emphasis on, on localism. And I was talking to Jared James yesterday about my personal political vision, and he was telling me that he has, he's a little bit more libertarian leaning in his personal politics. And what I was telling him was one of the, the thinkers that I'm inspired by is the American uh, socialist named Herbert Crowley, who coined the phrase Hamiltonian means to Jeffersonian ends. And he was trying to integrate Alexander Hamilton's vision of the government taking a very proactive role in um, kind of like in a Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, FDR style New Deal role. And, and also with a progressive vision of keeping large corporations in check. And that's how the, you know, the progressive era was born in the United States as a backlash against the Gilded Age. Uh, started, you know, spearheaded by guys like Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and you need that. You need the government to set the ground rules in order to give birth to radical localized Jeffersonian democracy. And you need to have the government make sure that other bad actors or power structures are not going to fuck things up for people who don't have a voice so that something positive can emerge from that. And so I, I see the both as being definitely being commensurate. And I was justifying the reason why I'm left-leaning in terms of policy and the role of government is because at this particular time, um, even, if, even if it was a very conservative view of the government where the government should simply not F anything up, that's still in some ways a, a kind of a, a tall order that we have to be cognizant of that where 
um, bad governance, bad policy can really get in the way of letting something more positive emerge organically. So I don't see those as I, I, I but I mean, I still struggle with thinking about the balance of that specifically, but very much in the spirit of what every, everyone has said here, I, I do see that taking care of the, the basics, um, like a Maslow's hierarchy, right? Really making sure that the basics are covered and then we can build on top of that first or on top of that later, once we have that established first. I just want to uh, throw in a, a few a few cents here too with this uh, topic, as uh, Benita Roy is also mentioning in the comments. Um, you know, where do we see the most coherence? And in terms of what we're discussing here, you know, there is on the one hand this this interesting tension between what Brad was saying about how do we build this you know planetized culture in a situation where you know, social media is toxic and atomizing, economic system is toxic and atomizing as an extension of that, um, or vice versa. And then you know, what, what can we actually do to build these, these regenerative and connective and integrative communities that can problem solve this? Um, I think part of this, for me, I, I've been really enjoying um, Bayo Ako Malafe's uh, concept of fugitivity in the sense of a line of flight, right? Like in a sense of acknowledging, to borrow from Joe Brewer's work as well, the sense that game A or this paradigm is going to be the composting heap for whatever regenerative kind of civilization or post-civilization and economics that that has um, is going to be. And in some sense, we have to treat it this way and see the state as it exists as a kind of intermediary form that it's probably that, as you're saying, Ryan, that the best case scenario for making that transition as painless as possible and helping people, because the alternative to dissolve the state through neoliberal free markets, you know, that doesn't work in a pandemic. That doesn't work in a climate crisis. We're seeing that firsthand this this year. So there obviously are strategies that we're going to have to take, but I think generally speaking, seeing this as a kind of composting paradigm, as a line of flight, and seeing ourselves in the sense of fugitivity, um, moving in a side real direction to a new way of structuring ourselves, our economics, our society, is a much more helpful one than trying to resolve the paradox of game A and game B, or trying to resolve the paradox of where we're in. Like, yeah, it's broken, it's falling apart, it's going to continue to implode, but there are, there are skillful means of allowing this to come undone, right? There's, there are compassionate means and strategies for less, lessening the suffering that is going to take place in this transition. And so I think that that's where I get my coherence. And um, yeah, so, so I, I don't see it as paradoxical. I see like, let's help people where we're at. The state continues to exist. It can still help people just because we believe everything's going to fall apart doesn't mean we should be politically nihilist or inactive, right? I think if we're not engaged, then we're not even engaged in the actual regenerative work, you know? So that's how I, that's how I kind of see the coherence. Yeah. What the state has a role to play. Uh, just because, you know, the Roman Catholic church sort of lost political power when nation states emerged doesn't mean the church went away. You know, so the nation state will have some role to play. And I think like, like you're saying, Jeremy, it's um, to provide uh, support as we transition into a new common attractor as a planet, as a species. And, you know, I think about Brad's 
point in regard to consensus, I'm actually optimistic about that. When you look at polling for things like Medicare for all, it's at like 70% now. That's all registered voters, Republicans and, and Democrats. Obviously, Republicans aren't as in favor of it, but even, and this was a poll taken, uh, it's like a Harris poll in April before the pandemic really got bad. So I bet those numbers went up. There's consensus around BLM and the need to, you know, uh, restart and try to finish these unfinished projects of reconstruction and civil rights. Like we're not done dealing with racism in America. Uh, there's consensus around that. You know, it's like, I think it's like 70% of the country is saying like, yeah, Black Lives Matter is a real thing. And the danger here though, is that this consensus will be funneled into some neoliberal Band-Aid um, that doesn't actually address the root problem. And, uh, you know, we're, when I think about the new attractor, you know, and what role the nation state plays, um, the thing about the American century that we've been in and the liberal multicultural dream that, that we've been trying to realize. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, everyone was declaring victory that the neoliberals were declaring victory. And now, now they're not so sure anymore. Um, and so one of the, it's, it's interesting to hear someone like Michael Brooks critique neoliberalism um, and then to read about the neo-reactionary critiques uh, of neoliberalism and to see like, oh, actually they're pretty, their critiques are pretty similar. Um, and so, but what are the alternatives? And, you know, we mentioned the internationalism that Michael uh, was, was, was developing and, and speaking to but there's a need, I think, for us to discover something um, more genuine than just this liberal multiculturalism. Um, because underlying that has always been a sense of, like, yes, you can, you can be proud of whatever you know, your racial background is, you can be proud of your cultural heritage and your religion, as long as you agree that at the end of the day, um, money is the master language, uh, the economy is God, as long as you're willing to you know, kind of take your, your, your religious belief or your culture, uh, your traditional inheritance as a sort of relativistic like window dressing or costume, when really you, you recognize and admit and bow to the power of the market, then multiculturalism is great. Corporations are all about it. That's not real pluralism though. You know, real pluralism um, accepts that difference is often irreducible and it, it doesn't allow money to become this general purpose solvent that dissolves social relationship uh, and that like mediates between every human to human interaction. Um, you know, so it's, it's a good thing that neoliberalism is collapsing, but it's creating a vacuum. And some of the alternatives that are really trying to fill that vacuum terrify me. And so, um, you know, what does genuine pluralism look like in an international context? Like how do we form consensus given our differences? And one of the suggestions I would make, and then I'll, I'll shut up, is we need to break out of the human, uh, like anthropocentric focus of, of politics and, so, and, and society and recognize, you know, in, in light of the ecological crisis that we are one among many kinds of beings on this planet. And I think once we see ourselves as a species in the context of the community of life on earth and the differences that exist between species and how despite our differences, we are absolutely dependent upon one another. Um, it'll do many things to loosen up our politics and help us find a way forward. But one of them is I think humans will see that despite our differences, we're actually not that different in comparison to the other beings we have to live with 
and amongst on this planet. Um, you know, Reagan used to talk about the aliens coming. That might be a possibility too, but we don't know whether they're friend or foe or don't care. Um, so, you know, right now it's, I would say, how do we break out of our human shell? Um, William Connolly, the political theorist, calls it um, sociocentrism in, as a form of, you know, anthropocentrism where we're so caught up in our human problems as if all the problems and the solutions are all internal to our human existence and our human communities, but they're not. We're members of a community of life on this planet and probably communities of other sorts of beings elsewhere in the cosmos, you know. We can get super spiritual and, and anthroposophical or whatever about other beings in the cosmos too. Maybe not, they're not all just physical, I don't know. Um, but the anthropocentric narrow um, ob ob obsession with politics and society is just a human domain, I think is, if we can break out of that, it might actually help us come together more as a human community in a, in a strange dialectical way. Does that make sense? 100%. Um, Brent, you want to jump in? Yeah, <clears throat> I want to bring it back to Bernie because uh, he keeps getting mentioned. I mentioned him and it was a, a huge part of Michael's politics. The Bernie movement came close both times to reaching a critical mass. <clears throat> and as we know, it was it was suppressed. It, it, it wasn't a perfect campaign by any means, but more importantly, it was suppressed by, by the powers that be. And it was obstructed by people like Bonita and Game B. If we're going to bring those into this, we have to mention my critiques. And I critiqued them both with humor and with substantive critical analysis. And so the Bernie movement was trying to build a mass political movement. It, it, by and large, it wasn't about identity politics and it wasn't class reductionist. Bernie's platforms, <clears throat> platform was and is the baseline for political progress, the absolute baseline across the board. It addressed pretty much everything. So we should have been able to build more of a mass movement and reach that tipping point. But st strategic uh, players like Obama, you know, uh, chose to support Biden instead of Bernie. I think there's a lot of strategic mistakes from the elites. And we didn't learn the lesson from 2016 in which Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump. And <clears throat> the left, the left of Michael Brooks and of me and of you guys and of Michael Moore predicted that Trump would win. And people didn't listen to us. We understood the dynamics of what was at play. And, and so our movement has been suppressed for four or five years now when it is the critical junction for the left to coalesce and push through. So if, if <clears throat> you know, I've criticized Game B, but Jim Rutt has opened his door to let me on his podcast in October. Well, partly because I kicked it down. But <clears throat> I'm going to continue to keep knocking on people's doors. And if Benita wants to be there in the chat and chime in, then she better reach out to me so we can have these critical, difficult dialogues to, to keep Michael Brooks's mission alive. Yeah, there's an interesting thing there with Bernie. Uh, you know, and the, that element of Michael's politics, because I think it ties in with what everybody's been saying here. 
that there's a real question of how you build spirit in people, right? And, and it has to be the kind of spirit that is simultaneously a healthy national spirit, an internationalist spirit, and something that empowers individuals to operate outside of the normal state functions. So that's a big call on the one side, but on the other hand, the fact that it has to hit all those marks means we're looking at a much smaller set of potential solutions. So we maybe are gonna be able to be more exact. It might simplify our task to know we have to hit something that does all those functions. But those functions are, uh, you have to depressurize and stabilize the population. You have to make the culture and the society operate in a way that's more ecologically informed, like Matt was saying. All right, and all these things are in that rough set of policies we were associating with that Bernie movement and whatever that kind of a movement is going forward. So there's a, there's a definite embodied politics that's not perfect, but it's mobilizing and it ties into a lot of these things, right? It's uh, international and national, it's ecological, it's economic justice, it's depressurizing and stabilizing and enhancing the system. And it understands the dangers of liberal multiculturalism. That in some ways, it, liberal multiculturalism isn't what it says it is. It has a set of values behind the values it claims. And it's also inherently self-destabilizing. If you leave it alone, it will become corrupt and start to fall apart. And when it does, it immediately regresses to what's prior to modernity. And we see that all around us. So either you'd make that jump to the next system, which is much more ecologically inspired, much more authentically pluralistic and able to generate spirits simultaneously at those different scales, or modernity will inherently self-sabotage and we will fall back. So the only solution to all those problems, it's not the solution to everything, but it's the solution to all those problems is to piggyback some kind of mass mobilization that orients around that cluster of general policy proposals and to do that in a very clear-headed, pragmatic, and even somewhat aggressive fashion. Well spoken, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think um, part of what I was interested in and I've, I've been drawn to uh, Bruno Latour's work in this context in the sense that, you know, some of the we can articulate and maybe cohere this emergent structure or um, uh, center of gravity or attractor, whatever language you want to uh, use it, uh, as something related to climate and ecology. And I think very much that if we start thinking about this, and this is where I like Joe Brewer's work, this is where I like Andrea, Andreas Weber's work um, in his book Enlivenment, and this um, ecologizing the commons, right, in the sense of thinking about these contexts as ecological, moving into the non-human. Um, I don't think this is necessarily something an everyday person is going, you know, in, in the middle of this is necessarily going to understand or, or grok in an immediate way. But the reality, the ontology of that are, is certainly immediate, just in terms of the climate disruptions we're facing. So I think in terms of where the left can go, I'm in agreement with Matt that uh, aligning these, this future economy, this post-capitalist world based off of or in relationship with the non-human world is going to be essential for our subsistence and survival, not only ontologically or spiritually or meaning-making wise, but also simply in terms of practicalities. You know, what is the sustainable uh, relationship we can have with the bioregion? Like Brad was bringing that up as well. And this is something that someone in the chat was asking about. Um, Joe Brewer's work, um, suggests 
and I don't know, we have to experiment with these models. We have to figure them out, but our ec economics should reflect our bioregion and the capacity of that bioregion, which means our economics might be um, polyphonic, you know, multivalent in a much more complicated way than they are right now, even though it seems like capitalism is highly complicated. It's not rooted and grounded in, in our bioregions. So we really have to rethink so many of these principles. And again, what the left is doing, what uh, Bernie Sanders was doing with the Green New Deal, and many of the platforms and policies they are forwarding are experimenting with this. They're not perfect. They're still very much kind of entrenched in, you know, the way the systems run today, but they are experimenting and innovating with that kind of thinking, like not just carbon tax, but okay, can we think of other forms of value and currency, et cetera? Um, all of that needs to be on the table. So it's not so much that we think, right, integral left is thinking, oh, we have to work within the system. It's the system needs to innovate and transform and kind of radicalize itself from within, right? It needs to be fecund for that sort of thinking. And if we look at cultural evolution, you know, there's a lot of fugitivity, yes, but then there's also just a lot of experimentation. Eventually, people start adopting it, experimenting with it, innovating with it. Um, you know, so it's not an either or, I guess, is what I'm saying with, with these kinds of things. But climate and ecology are so important. Yeah, just just to tail off that, Jeremy, I think one of the motifs that's cropped up in this conversation is about embodiment and you know, really grounding into this kind of local and bioregional regenerative consciousness and whether that's expressed through something like permaculture and trying to give a shout out here to Jason uh, Snyder and I think, you know, kind of his interest in the localism and then the Wendell Berry, you know, nature and conservancy and, and naturalist uh, kind of uh, awareness. And I think that one of the pathologies that we suffer from, not only with through social media and the internet and, and communication technology and technology in general, as it dissociates us from the body and from the local environment, right? As our attention is always moving towards a horizon of the present moment that we can never reach through the constant bombardment of news and trying to stay current. But also politically, we have a awkward middle zone that I think of an over-nationalization of political discourse and, and a highly nationalized political consciousness with a lack of both local and international awareness. And I was watching Nomi Key talk about, give her tribute to, to Michael, and she was saying that Michael is known for his internationalism, but he was also a brilliant localist and he knew New York politics and helped her out when she was running inside and out. And he had such a, you know, exquisite understanding of, of every level of government and society ranging from the, the local and the municipal to the uh, global and planetary. And I think that's a truly, um, I think as an integral community, we need to be very cognizant of that and try to both be more internationally aware and get out of our myopic uh, American or North American bubbles and also growl more deeply into the local and develop and engage with local politics as well. And I live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm guilty of this as anyone. I don't know diddly poo about what's happening in the local community. And I've kind of dissociated myself from that as I've been more sucked into the, the national drama around Trump and the elections and Biden and so forth. So I think it's, it's incumbent upon myself and I think all of us to be more internationally and planetary aware and also really ground and root into the local for to truly instantiate a kind of cosmo was it cosmo-localism was the word, kind of uh, awareness. Yeah, I just posted that in the, in the chat live stream on YouTube. 
Um, I think it's it's a good word to borrow from the the peer to peer movement and scholarship, cosmo localism, because it is sort of uh, a variation of a theme of what what Brooks was practicing and what he was advocating in his work in terms of cosmopolitan socialism. So it's a it's a helpful helpful word. Yeah, you know, I'm, I've been curious about how we might go about distinguishing something like cosmo localism um, from, you know, Alexander Dugan's notion of a multipolar world and, and, a, and a sort of retreat to the ethnostate form of organization in light of the postmodern critique of truth and the idea that each people has its own truth and so we should just let everyone return to their traditional soil, wherever that might be. And you know, that's why it's scary because that's fascist, but um, it, that's a form of localism. This other form is more internationalist, obviously, and more genuinely pluralistic. But when we think about how to move forward here, the ecological crisis is something that if humanity doesn't face together is gonna kill us all in our separate little nations. Um, so it's a vector, a, a tractor that I hope we respond to um as a community collectively as a species right but the thing about like say a green new deal everyone's really hip on like modern monetary theory that we can use to pay for this but i wonder about what happens to modern monetary theory if the united states u.s dollar no longer holds the reserve currency status can we continue to just print money to pay for these infrastructure projects because make sure everyone has a job and because the thing is like why would China and other countries keep buying our bonds when we're when they don't think our country is the leader of the world and has the military that's going to enforce that all economic transaction transactions are done in the dollar? Like, um, so does mon modern monetary theory work to help the United States with its Green New Deal? I'm not sure. And so it seems like if there is going to be a Green New Deal that's going to be successful, it has to be international. It can't just be one nation doing its own thing. We need to support each other in that work. And unfortunately, that makes it way more difficult because we have to build consensus uh, in, in a way that our species has never been able to do before. And I'm not, a, I'm not like uh, an, a, a, an economist or like, I don't pretend to understand the complexities of how the international economy works and what the US debt really is and how bonds, are, I don't, I can't find anyone that understands it or can explain it well enough to me. So, but that's, this is my sense that, you know, modern monetary theory has a weak point here, which is it, pres it presupposes the US dollar remaining the reserve currency and all of the boost that we get to our economy as a result of that. So if we're anti-imperialism and anti-military industrial complex, which allows the US dollar to remain the reserve currency and we're pro-modern monetary theory, it seems like there might be some contradiction in there somewhere. Brad, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I just, yeah. I just want to say I'm just really resonating with a lot of what was said, um, and it resonates with also what I was trying to invoke in, in the emphasis on the bioregional and field-dependent reasoning. And Matt brings a really great question. That's a great question that I don't have the answer to, but one reflection I have is just that it's all it's all happening at once, and we need to stay open to just the the open emergence of everything that's unfolding, and you know like. As Brett pointed out with, with, with the Bernie movement, I mean, the way that that should have, could have happened twice, 
And the way in which it didn't speaks to the depth of the pathology of the game a infrastructure life world, right? Like it's so like there's a way in which we're so close and there's a way in which it actually couldn't happen. Like it, it was actually impossible in, 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 from another angle given like, oh, what happened is what was going to happen because of the depth of the, of the network of how money works in politics and media. So it's like, it's both. It's like seeing how, how deep the pathologies are, how much we really have to extricate ourselves from to breathe real life into any of these ideals which is why like understanding the depth of the game A pathology, which is why emergent sort of game B ideas are going to start popping off and are gonna start offshooting. And people are gonna be experimenting outside of or within their nation state. And at the same time, yes, as much as we can, orienting the conversation of nation state sort of support for people to be moving into how do we support bioregional health? How, do we, how does the state how does the Green New Deal or Teal New Deal support the decentralization of agriculture and learning and education and everything, right? And like post-work, understanding work as like a relatively recent uh, idea. So it's like all these things, like it's definitely both and, both and all the way up and all the way down. And it's really, I think we have to both understand how deeply entrenched game A sort of fucked upness is. Um, which is why game B has to emerge as an idea, but also I'm not at all suggesting giving up on the relevance of the state and trying to salvage, you know, how can the, how can the 21st century state, even if it leads to its own demise in some way, like the next step is definitely something like at minimum, the Green New Deal. But I just haven't wrapped my head around how to really penetrate through and transcend the the level of um, manipulation involved in like what actually kept the Bernie movement from, from coming to fruition now, right? Because it's past due. Like we all have this sense in which we are, we're running out of time. So it's all, it's all gotta happen, you know? Everybody play their role and keep just don't give up and love your brothers and sisters. I don't know. <laughs> I just wanna pick up off that because you know, so Michael, Michael's superpower was threading the needle <clears throat> of, of, of this kind of stuff. And, you know, he had a ton of sources in his back pocket that, you know, didn't get to disclose to the world. And that would that would come out in various places. Right. And it's like, wow, this guy has so much like breadth and, and depth. And so the point I want to make is that, you know, I've, I've said this before with layman and others, like the solutions are already out there. People don't realize that, that all of these things have been addressed by one scholar or another, and it gets, it gets obstructed and, and suppressed. And the Green New Deal in particular was proposed by the UN in 2009. And there's several, there's many versions out there since then. And <clears throat> people need to think of the macro meta context here. It's the end of US empire right, where we had 70 years of kind of a unipolar world. Well, the, the Cold War was, you know, <clears throat> ostensibly a, a conflict, but, but, uh, but the United States emerged uh, because, it, because it was ruthless, uh, more ruthless than its, than its opponent and uh, economically voracious through, through capitalism. But the UN was formed, right, in, in the, con the post-World War II era and it was formed 
in large part by the United States, and it's been underfunded and hamstrung ever since. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's failing, right? How do we expect it to work when the U.S. and other countries dominate it and 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 uh, you know <clears throat> pervert it through their different conflicting interests? So it's clear what we have to keep doing is 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 you know building out that international solidarity in the institutional level of the UN, whether it gets reinvented or just refunded, uh, or you know just. Um, more more funding but it is the end of u.s empire one one way or another <clears throat> and so now is the time to not you know give in to the fear and the post-truth uh climate and discourse that says we need to you know we weaponize the police more we need to keep funding the military industrial complex no we need to go in the opposite direction and so <clears throat> that's going to take this powerful movement and, and what Michael Brooks stood for in his life of, of uh, synthesizing all this complexity and, and threading the needle of, of how we talk about that and how we accomplish it. Because these specific things, you know, are, are, are not negotiable. Like, like we need to draw down the military industrial complex. It's just a question of how. Yeah, I think at the level of you know, what are the minimum upgrade solutions? There is a lot of uh, consensus and a lot of good scholarship that's already solved most of those particular problems. So the question is not whether or not there are solutions to get us that, to get the floor up one level on our civilization. We do have solutions like that. What we don't have is a strong consensus among advanced sense makers that these are the policies we need to enact. What we don't have is generalized public spirit such that people feel they actually can mobilize on these things. And what we don't have is a really deep and rich understanding of how that system protects itself and will come at us. Like Brad was saying, there's a thing about how deep does game A go? And in addition to the question of just how appreciating how deep it goes, there's a question of what is it actually doing? What are its operative principles? Because if we know better what it really does, then we can anticipate it, we can counter it, but also if we try to set up distributed game B experiments, we have to set them up in a way that isn't already infected with that same process. So we need like super clarity on what those underlying basic processes are. Yeah, and I, and I would just say briefly too, like how deep does it go in our mind, right? Like it's, it's where we are encultured and we make sense within that context. And it's so it's, it's, it's hard to really get out of the enculturation of it. Um, yeah, it's, 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 and, and, and we have, we have a lot of lower right answers, but we don't necessarily have the answers of like how to cultivate a healthy lower left, right? We don't have the cultural answers. And if we do, they might lie in our distant past, perhaps, right? Like that's why I feel like the inclusion and integration of all like space and time um, diversity is really going to be crucial because we might have to learn from our ancestors on some of this stuff like pre-game a ancestral cultural knowledge might also also help understand how we actually will enact and facilitate the actual use of our new and novel like lower right solutions right somehow we have to bring the two ends together and allow actual relational cultural health to facilitate the emergence of like structural and economic solutions mm -hmm. amen yeah well said it's kind of like a game a decolonization <laughs> yeah. in a way 
but let me just ask Layman a quick question, just because just to make sure I understand what you're saying, Layman. So you're saying that there there's kind of a lack of consensus about the real granular details about policy or or lower right quadrant uh, solutions by some of these uh, you know advanced sense making or or communities that we're a part of, let's say. Let's say that every one of these communities, you know, Brent's, Brent's uh, consensus building project was wildly succeeded beyond our dreams. And we're all behind, you know, all, all 3,000 of us or however many right around the world are all on board with the exact same agenda. Like, what, what happens next? Like, what, what would be the, the impact of that? Practically? Yeah, that's an excellent question. At the very least, it takes a lot of other noise off the table, which puts us in a better position. I think in coming to that clarity, we're also going to come to a lot of ideas about how to get that done. I think there's a lot of insights that we just don't have yet about what to do because we haven't agreed upon what kinds of things ought to be done. Once we sense that we're on the same page about that, it gives us a little bit extra momentum. But obviously, that's not a big enough solution overall. I mean, it can move us forward in communicating. It can move us forward so we sound like we're a team on the same page, putting out a more powerful message. It can lead us to get involved in politics in different ways and make different kinds of contributions. Um, but it's only one piece of what has to happen for sure. I want to emphasize too that I think um, like what Brad was saying, uh, not just in the lower left and the socio-cultural, but also in the individual upper left, um, in the phenomenological and existential, we really have to overcome and point out where we ourselves are captured by game A or capitalist ideology, if you want to put it that way, or in my own language with, with Gepser or integral language, perspectivalism, you know, and the mental rational deficient structure. I mean, we can identify these tendencies in ourselves. And I think we have to internalize what this integrative, spiritual oriented, way of living actually is in order to be effective. And this is why Brooks himself, I think, was very effective in building this network. And it, I, it's hopeful to see so many people in the left community now talking about the importance of that. Like, I really need an integrative spiritual orientation, or maybe that is important. Maybe I should have listened more to that rather than just schooling up on the theory with Brooks, like Beshkar Sankara was talking about that in the live stream today. So, um, whether or not anyone's going to follow up on this, I don't know. But at least within our community, this is something we have to internalize. Or perhaps, you know, Gebser has this phrase that, you know, the, the culture in which we're embedded in, we've sort of externalized certain modes of thinking, right? And that feeds back into this environmental pressure to conform to what we'd call game A. How do we retract that expression? How do we realize that this is something that comes from within us and therefore overcome it? This is an internal supersession, right? This is an internal realization as much as it is an external one and seeing the two together is so important. So as a kind of spiritual praxis for an integral left, this is a personal thing and this is a cultural thing as well as a theoretical movement building thing. Um, and I think just, just sort of seeing that framework or seeing that integrality of the inner and the outer is so essential to just begin just to begin right just to be able to not have a dialogue on twitter that ends up being you know a flame war um it's it's really hard you know um because that environment is is invoking and promoting that in us you know it wants us to get it's it's incentivized and mastered for that it's like yeah yeah 
get in a get in a, a flame war with this person and have a, a tweet thread arguing with them do it do it like everything is, is is based off of that so in some ways like we almost need a kind of like monastic level interiorization of this different way of living you know the, the intensity in which we have to be present in this culture it's not easy you know I, I don't think there's easy answers but you know there's at least that and then there's doing that together you know and and again one of the Jake, jacobin articles about brooks um brooks brought up regenerative and i want i kind of wonder you know between our community if maybe he picked that up from us always like tagging him talking about regenerative culture these past few months but i love the way he used it which which is you know let's be redemptive with each other let's be forgiving with each other there's a lot of people who are making him into a saint right now and i think you know as beautiful and as heart heart opening and breaking as that is i think you know even in that quote he says i'm a deeply flawed person we have to allow ourselves to be deeply flawed people and allow regeneration and redemption to occur um, so I, yeah, I think these are just some of the principles we can, and should be starting with. Um, yeah. yeah, just, you know, it, it strikes me as you're saying, uh, Jeremy, the way that social media is designed to foster, uh, I wouldn't even call it polemic. It's like worse than that. Cause I think that there could be a point to polemic sometimes that advances understanding, but it's, it's, uh, it's just war, it's a meme war or something. Um, total information war where we're just like like launching our clashing worldviews at each other and, and we just bounce off. We're not even meeting. There's no meeting taking place. And it's like, uh, you know, I, may, I don't know if this is unique to American culture, but I certainly see it um, in intense form in the American popular media discourse, especially on social media, where it's like we think freedom of thought we champion freedom of thought and freedom of speech as if thought and speech were like private property. I don't, I don't think, you know, if you think about how like the ancient Greeks, Greeks understood the nature of thought, it's not private. Uh, you know, when you're engaged in public discourse in the Agora, you can be agonistic, you can even be polemic, but because thought was thought to be something objective that, you know, we, we participate in, it's a collective undertaking, it's not private. Um, it, it, it allowed for polemic to be like mutually enhancing of the level of discourse. And, you know, so I think it's just like, we need to break out of this idea that like somehow like speak as if, as if language was something that we each own like privately. Uh, language is, is a public good. Like we share it. It works. It carries meaning because we share it, you know, uh, and, and thought similarly. It's like we think together or not at all. We're not thinking together. We are quite literally idiots, you know, um, etymologically. So I appreciate what, what, where, where you're headed there, Jeremy, and, and wanted to kind of throw that in as a critique of American culture and our sort of faux obsession with freedom. <laughs> well said. Uh, thank you, Matt. I think a, a few of us have got to run. Layman had to go. Ryan, you were mentioning that. So maybe. Maybe this is a good place to close, although I feel like we could just keep going. <laughs> um, let's do this again, you know? I think uh, a, tr a real tribute to Brooks would to be to have these conversations and to continue the work. So let's, let's do that together. Um, 
it's uh, thank you again, everybody. It's been great to uh, talk with you. And um, I feel a real, you know, if it, one note, you know, I, I do feel since Michael's passing a strong sense of solidarity with all of us who were so moved by him and his vision, um, even if we were just getting into him or, or not. So if there's anything that is constructive and regenerative, speaking of, that comes out of this, it's us coming together in a much more profound way. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Great to talk to you today and to remember Thank you, guys. Thanks. Rest in power, Michael.